This is the Monday, September 12th, 2016 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new interview every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old towns of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. Today, our time machine visits a battlefield in eastern Pennsylvania. It's one maybe you haven't heard about before, but it's ground consecrated with the blood of American patriots from the founding generation. As we've said before, it's important to actually walk the ground where historic events occurred. Together, we'll do exactly that at the Paoli Battlefield Historical Park and Paoli Memorial Grounds, just under an hour's drive west of Philadelphia. Our guide is Jim Christ, Vice President of the Paoli Battlefield Preservation Fund. The Battle of Paoli, also called the Paoli Massacre for its brutality, unfolded at midnight on September 20th to 21st, 1777. After General George Washington's defeat at Brandywine on September 11th, his forces retreated towards the new capital of Philadelphia, hoping to regroup, and Washington ordered General Anthony Wayne to harass the British and keep them off his back. The attempt failed, and the result was the ninth deadliest battle in the American Revolutionary War. You can learn more about this unique historic destination at rememberpaoli.org or at Paoli Battle on Twitter. And you spell that name, P-A-O-L-I. Okay, now that we've packed our haversack, let's march back to the times that try men's souls and bivouac with Jim Christ on Pennsylvania's Paoli Battlefield. I'm joined by Jim Christ, Vice President of the Paoli Battlefield Preservation Fund. We're sitting on the very ground where British and Continental soldiers clashed in 1777. Thank you for making the time to sit down with the History Author Show, Jim. Well, thank you, Dean. I appreciate it. Set the stage for people. They can probably hear that we're outside. There's some birds. Those are real live birds. We didn't train them or <laughs> invite them. Oh, perfect. Perfect ambient sound. As we've talked about before on the show, it's important to walk the actual ground where history happened. And right here in this little corner of suburban Malvern, Pennsylvania, it's built up around it. But right here, you can really stand on the ground. So set the stage, describe the scene for us a little. Before the battle unfolds, tell us what this area would have looked like, where we're sitting today, and what was happening in the Revolutionary War. Well, we're sitting right now in the Paoli Memorial Grounds portion of the battlefield. There's the actual main battlefield portion, the Paoli Memorial Grounds portion. This was a farmer's field. They grew a lot of corn, flax, and other crops in this area. Where the current monument battlefield borderline is, that was actually a borderline between the two farms. But this was a rural Chester County farming community. 
General Anthony Wayne, oddly enough, lived about five miles up the road. His house is still there, Waynesboro, which is a National Historic Site. But that was sort of the scene as to what happened here and what this area was like before the battle happened. You mentioned General Anthony Wayne, who, by the way, I only recently learned is Batman, Bruce Wayne's fictional Correct. ancestor. So mm-hmm. that that adds a whole new level when you start thinking about the actual <laughs> battle unfolding. You know, it's sort of like a, a Justice League thing happening. But we are back in 1777. There's none of those Batman gadgets. This is real men fighting here and fighting with bayonets, which is a gruesome weapon. If anyone's seen it or anyone has seen a wound from a bayonet, it's no fun. Certainly, it's very gruesome. But that's what happened. Those are the days of war. And you talk about that quite a bit in the other things I've seen you do here educationally, because this is very much a living park. You invite people to come and partake, and not only in the Revolutionary War and the role you played in it, but also in wars that have come since. It unfolds the history for your visitors. Sitting here, you can imagine it is indeed very similar to what it was. It's not built up. It's a little area caught right in the time warp, because around it, there are houses and subdivisions. These two armies clash in 1777. Why here? Why this place? Why the tavern that you spoke about? Well, this was part of the Philadelphia campaign of 1777. After the Battle of Brandywine was fought, there was another battle called the Battle of the Clouds that was fought just west of here around Immaculata College is where sort of the center of the battle lines would have been. Washington was going to be outflanked, but right before the real heavy fighting started, the clouds opened up and it rained. And we're not talking a a weak shower. We're talking it was a nor'easter or a possible hurricane. The rain and the wind were so strong, the British actually tried to do a bayonet attack. And they found that when they ran after the Americans, that their boots were sticking in the mud. And they deemed it unwise to continue. They retreated to the White Horse Tavern, which actually a tavern building still stands today. It's no longer a tavern, it's a private residence. The Americans retreated all the way to Yellow Springs, which is also still there today. It was actually a hospital at that point. Washington split his forces and gave the usable gunpowder, four cannons, and provisions to General Anthony Wayne, who took his Pennsylvania troops down here to keep an eye on the British. His orders from General Washington were attack the rear of the baggage train as the army was in motion, the British army was in motion. Anthony Wayne knew this area. As I said, he grew up less than five miles from the battlefield. So he was very aware of the area and knew the terrain very well. He was perhaps a bit too overconfident because he wrote in his letters that the British have no idea where I am. This is great. It's perfect. We have the surprise on how. The problem was that his messages between Washington and Wayne were being intercepted by loyalist spies. Howe then found out that he had Wayne to the south of him, Washington to the north of him. Washington, however, was going to get supplies, wouldn't be able to aid Wayne if he were attacked. So the logical thing would be to take care of Wayne and then turn his army against Washington. General Howe called in General Charles Gray, who many people call no Flint Gray, because during the attack here, he told him to take the flints out of your muskets, and this would be a bayonet-only attack. And he flashes that you see you know the enemy so you can go and charge right at them it was a beautiful battle plan however there was one small tweak in the battle plan that would have made this a very successful british win the british attacked from the east to the west instead of west to east they actually had a cavalry force down by the paoli tavern the name of the battle the battle of paoli doesn't take place because the town called paoli it's because it was near the paoli tavern 
It was a sort of the middle ground between the two troops, the two camps. As the British swept in from the east, the first to go through was the 2nd Light Infantry and some horsemen. They broke and scared the Americans who were here in camp. Wayne had about maybe 20 minutes notice that the British were coming, but didn't know what direction, what the troop strength was, anything like that. It was all dark. It's a midnight bayonet raid, so it's going to be dark. The Americans are illuminated perfectly because of the campfires. The British can see them, but the Americans can't see where the British are coming from. They charged in from the far tree line on the east side of the battlefield and swept through the area. They came in three waves. The first being the second light infantry with some mounted dragoons. The second was the 44th afoot. And the last was the Black Watch, the 42nd Royal Highlander Regiment. And they came through and swept the camp and pushed the Americans out and scattered them. At the time, there would have been not only confusion on the battlefield among the men, but also what people reported afterwards. And I thought of that as you were talking about Anthony Wayne. Again, I'm picturing Batman with only the greatest respect to him. I have to thank Don Glickstein and after Yorktown, that was where I picked up that. Mm -hmm. A battle like Yorktown, a battle like the Battle of Brandywine, those are the main set pieces. And we forget that there are battles in between. And that was something that you mentioned before we started, that people overlook you here at Paoli. They just think, well, okay, it was just sort of this straight timeline and they skip over the Battle of the Clouds and your battle here. So explain what comes after and what comes before the battle here. Okay, when the uh, British launched the Philadelphia campaign in 1777, they landed at Head of Elk, Maryland, late August of 1777. The first skirmish that we really have is the Battle of Cooch's Bridge in Delaware, and it was basically the American Light Infantry, Maxwell's Light Infantry, against some Hessians. Basically, it was sort of a feeling-out expedition. There was no real battle lines. They just fired and withdrew tried to slow the British down. That's really all it, it accomplished, if anything. The second battle we have is the largest land battle in the uh, Revolutionary War, the Battle of Brandywine, which happened September 11th, 1777. Really a big, huge one-day battle encompassing more land than any other battle site in the United States. It was a loss for the Americans. The Americans retreated first to Chester. Washington bounced all over the place, but he ended up back here on September 16th, 1777 and set up a line of battle just west of here. The British came up and they traveled a couple different routes. Again, it looked like it was going to be a replay of Brandywine because he had British troops and Hessians coming in at different angles at Washington. So he was going to be flanked in a couple positions. The troops, right before the heavy fighting started, uh, the rains opened up and um, the battle was pretty much washed out. It was either a nor'easter or a hurricane-strength storm that passed by. The Americans retreated to Yellow Springs. Washington split his forces. And then that set up the Battle of Paoli, which happened here. It was a midnight on September 20th, 1777. This was the last battle before Howe took Philadelphia with no real resistance after that. At your website pbpfinc.org, you describe this as the most pristine revolutionary war battlefield in the United States, unchanged for over 230 years. In an area that is so built up, how? How did it withstand the march of time? It seems incredible. <laughs> it does seem incredible. This area that we're on, the Paoli Memorial side of this, was actually saved in, uh, it really started in 1817. A monument was built on top of where 
52 dead patriots in the battle are housed. There's a small monument there. That is the original 1817 monument. still stands today. It was a place of remembrance and of reverence to the veterans that fell, not only of the American War, but of following wars. It was started by a group of War of 1812 soldiers, and they had a day called Paoli Days, and they always had it around September 20th, the anniversary of the battle. There were parades that started here. They actually started from the Paoli Tavern and marched all the way here to the site, and it actually continued from 1817 all the way up to around the Civil War. It was then changed to Memorial Day. The Malvern Memorial Parade is actually held a week after Memorial Day. The reasoning behind that, there was a lot of clusters of close-knit cities here, and they all wanted to have a Memorial Day parade, but as the Civil War veterans started dying off, they needed to stagger where the veterans were going to be and what parades. One was held the night before, one was held the day of, and Paoli's was held a week afterwards. It's the 138th anniversary of the Paoli Memorial Parade coming up, but if you add the Paoli Days to it, that actually adds a lot more credibility to our statement that this is the oldest Memorial Day parade in the United States. The grounds here were actually protected by an act of Congress to protect the monuments that were here. They were in such a disarray after they refurbished and built an 1877 Centennial Monument. An act of Congress was used to protect the battlefield and the adjacent grounds. The battlefield itself was owned by Malvern Prep School, Preparatory School. One of the history teachers there, Thomas McGuire, was the one who actually got an impetus start to save the battlefield. Malvern was going to sell part of the battlefield land. He said it should be preserved because it is of such national significance. And through an act of Congress, one of the first Patriots Act, money was raised along with matching funds that citizens of this area provided that in the latter part of 1999, early 2000, the battlefield was purchased and saved. It is owned by the borough of Malvern, and it is administered by us, the Paoli Battlefield Preservation Fund. It's a site of national historic significance, but not yet a national historic site. So that's unique in that it's owned by the town of Malvern. How does the visitor experience here, therefore, differ from the federally operated sites like nearby Valley Forge, where I probably wouldn't be talking to the vice president, I'd be talking to a park ranger. Mm-hmm. And as there should be, there's a lot of red tape there. They're very protective of what they say and who they go and speak to, which I do understand. But sometimes when you go to a site like this, you come to Paoli and it's a family atmosphere. This almost feels like it's the backyard of the town of Malvern. There's a baseball field, there's houses, there's all these kind of things. So how is the experience here different? Tell us about what people experience when they come, say, to the anniversary commemoration. Well, we have our Paoli Battlefield Heritage Day. This will be our fourth anniversary of sort of starting this up. It's going to be held on September 24th this year at the Paoli Battlefield. We have American military timeline from the French and Indian War all the way through, actually including the USO, all the way up to the National Guard here to help people educate them, understand what veterans had to face, what weapons they carried in the battle, what instruments they used, how they dressed. We do firing demos, we do dog rescue shows, we do duels, we do things to teach the people what it was like. As far as the grounds itself, it is basically an open community park. People come here, they walk their dogs, they run around the track that's here, fly kites, all kinds of activity that you'll find at a normal everyday site. We do have some markers, some 
plaques that people can go around and take a walking tour of the battlefield. We're going to have cell phone tours of the battlefield available soon where you can dial a, a number on your cell phone and, and listen to a script. And we're working right now with getting video up on the battlefield where you can scan a QR code on your smartphone and a video will pop up and educate you on the Battle of Paoli and what happened here in 1777. Well, what happened here leads us perfectly into that midnight in the dark, these soldiers waiting for their enemy to come and pounce on them. So mm -hmm. tell us, what happens when the British emerge from those woods behind us? Well, the British led down citizenry. Anybody who happened to be caught out in the night led them to the uh, Admiral Warren Inn, which is now the General Warren Inn, which is located right down the hill from us. They found a blacksmith who they coerced into leading him to the battlefield. We don't know if they tortured him or simply asked him, he was scared enough to reveal the location, but he led the British, actually guided them to the camp. Fortunately for the Americans, he led them to the east end of the battlefield instead of the western end of the battlefield. The reason that's so significant is that General Gray's troops were going to take attack from the west and push the Americans towards the east. They would then run into a mounted dragoon force that was located by the Paoli Tavern, and Wayne's army would be caught between two British forces and annihilated or surrendered. That would have left General Washington with 2,000 or so less troops, and of course, General Anthony Wayne as a prisoner of the British. However, the guide led him to the eastern edge of the battlefield. It was, of course, at nighttime. There were warnings to Wayne that this was going to happen. The Finally, the first real credible threat that he got his troops up and ready was about 20 minutes before the attack happened. Wayne was galloping about on his horse, raising his men, saying, up your boys, they're here, they're here, trying to get them ready. He was putting them in motion to try to get out of the way, but he didn't know which way to go. Where are the troops coming from? No one knew. The British finally burst through on the eastern side through the woods. The first unit they ran into was the 1st Pennsylvania. 1st Pennsylvania is uh, armed with hunting rifles. There's no ability to put a bayonet on a hunting rifle. It's a long rifle. You use it to obviously to shoot in long ranges. The British came out and they were about 50 yards in front of the troops. The Pennsylvania riflemen might have taken a shot or two and left. They ran. That forced them into the 4th Pennsylvania and so on. It kept pushing back until he got up to the fence. There was also three fence lines that the uh, Americans had to go through as obstacles. They got to the last one, which was the marker of the property line between the two farms, and that's where the Americans did make a stand for a time. The British sort of surrounded them more in a horseshoe-type fashion, and anybody who got out of line in the Americans was quickly put to death with the bayonet. We also have some atrocities that occurred here. We actually have a soldier who was captured and put in a circle of British troops, all with bayonets. And they each took turns stabbing him with their bayonets and pushing him around. As one of the persons said, it almost looked like a sport. This person died about a week after the battle. He had 46 distinct bayonet wounds. We also have reports of drummer boys who put their hands up to shield them from the swords from the horsemen. And actually, their, their fingers are all gone from the sword cuts that were done. We have a lot of head and neck wounds from the swords coming down on them. As you mentioned, we have a lot of bayonet wounds that happened during this battle. We had troops that hid in these wigwams, these shelters that were built to protect the gunpowder and weapons from the elements, and the British set fire to them, burning some of them alive. 
We have cases where people were down on the ground, looked like they were surrendering and the British were stabbing them. So there was a lot of confusion that happened here. Uh, Gray is not particularly known as a gentlemanly soldier. There were some other attacks that he did. You know, there were some dead bodies left behind of people who claimed they surrendered. So to the British, this seemed like a normal battle. To the Americans, this was basically an atrocity. And that's how the term the Paoli Massacre got coined for this battle. How many people are we talking about in general numbers that were killed? The best estimate that we have is probably around 300, which, again, we have other historians who have uh, sort of arrived at that number, which makes it around the ninth bloodiest battle of the Amer whole American Revolutionary War. There are 53 dead Americans here on the battlefield. There's 52 in a mass grave behind us, and there's one other somewhere in the battlefield. We don't know exactly where. We do know others were taken from this site to local houses that died. And again, this is Revolutionary War time. No one wore dog tags. A lot of people reported missing. The British, yes, they did take some prisoners from Paoli who died later on prison ships in Philadelphia. So there's a lot of a wide wath of where they could have taken these people to die. But the general estimate is probably around 300 killed and missing. I'm sitting with Jim Christ at the Paoli Battlefield, just outside Philadelphia. Jim is vice president of the Paoli Battlefield Preservation Fund. I want you all to know he's wearing a shirt, which I, I always like when people participate. <laughs> yeah, just showing the shirt to the mic. So, nice of you, but it's, they can't see it. <laughs> it's radio. But no, no. It's okay to identify myself in case you didn't know who I was. <laughs> and remember, paoli.org is a website right there on the shirt that I hope people are typing in right now. You can also follow at Paoli Battle on Twitter. It's P-A-O-L-I. There's many events throughout the years, not only on Twitter, on Facebook, pbpfinc.org slash sponsorships is a place where you can find how you can participate in the Paoli Battlefield. I'm hoping people will, once they start reading about it, you do have a great website, will want to experience this. It's one of the few places, I would say, where you really feel it's large enough. It encompasses everything. You're not telling me that this house here behind us is on a spot where Anthony Wayne was rallying his troops. This is really a spot where it encompasses everything. Pennsylvania militiaman William Hutchinson wrote of one soldier's fate, the soldier you just heard Jim speak about, with the British get around him and begin to stab him. Hutchinson wrote, more than a dozen soldiers had, with fixed bayonets, formed a cordon around him and that every one of them in sport had indulged their brutal ferocity by stabbing him in different parts of his body and limbs. A physician examining him there said there was found 46 distinct bayonet wounds, unquote. This is sort of what we were trying to get to. It's great that it's a park, but there is a mass grave behind us. These were men that fell in service to the ideal of a free America. We all owe a debt to the Continental Soldier and the others massacred here at the battlefield. This was a place where there was so much blood that many of the people around here, the antecedents of these folks that are living in these comfortable suburban houses and all of us, they saw this and it really would have looked like a massacre to them. They weren't used to having seen war brought to their doorsteps and seeing where there would have been bayonet wounds and this horrible heads cut open. This would have all been very, very gruesome. Anthony Wayne here is kind of left holding the bag. He has Continentals here. These are not militiamen who aren't trained or not universally militiamen. There are some there. How does his career suffer from this? How is he impacted by this? Well, first, there's a court of inquiry that is held 
on October 13, 1777. He actually demands that a court of inquiry open up and take a look at this. His second-in-command, Colonel Humpton, who is actually born in Britain, is actually chomping at the bit to bring up charges on Anthony Wayne. He, he thinks what Wayne did here is wrong. It's horrible. What he did here actually broke some military regulations. The court has a lot of different witnesses. There's one openly hostile towards Wayne. There are four that make accusations against him. But Wayne is sort of generally clear. They said, well, we can't really find too much wrong with your conduct, but you did do some things wrong. Wayne is incensed. Wayne wanted a full pardon and a full whitewashing of his record, basically saying this never happened. He demands a general court-martial. So after some battles have happened, it's calmed down on November the 1st of 1777, General Washington lets Wayne have his court-martial. It is judged by General Sullivan, I believe. There are five generals who participate in it. And after the proceedings, we don't know much about the proceedings because a lot of the papers have been lost, but we do know that it cleared Anthony Wayne. It cleared his name. I think the quote that we have is, the court do acquitteth with the highest honor. So Wayne's honor is restored. He does fight with Washington. He is present at Valley Forge. As you know, there's a statue of him at Valley Forge. He does fight at the Bottle of Monmouth. His big highlight comes, though, in 1779. There is a fort in uh, New York called Stony Point. It's called the Gibraltar of the Hudson. It's on a 300-foot palisade overlooking the Hudson River Valley. Washington wants to assault this with a light infantry force. He appoints Wayne in command of that force. Wayne basically says to Washington, I want full control over these troops. I want to train them and have no interference from any other outside person. I do report to you, but I want to have control over these officers and men. Washington agrees. It's supposed to be a midnight only bayonet raid. Sounds sort of similar to Paoli. He had learned his lesson. The old general did learn his lesson from here. He did attack. It was close to early morning when the attack actually took place. But Anthony Wayne is wounded in the head. His troops do carry him over the parapets of the fort. They take the fort by complete surprise. They capture British soldiers, but there are no atrocities that are committed. Wayne is celebrated. He gets a gold medal from Congress. There's people over in Europe writing about the Battle of Stony Point and how flawless this plan was that Wayne had and how expertly it was carried out. So his career rebounds after that. There is a National Historic Site at Stony Point, by the way, that people can visit. I've yes. been there. and Hey, you can hear them fire the cannons, which is pretty <laughs> great. Yeah. If you ever want to have a fun weekend with history and you get to play <laughs> with guns, you can. they shoot the muskets and they will shoot the cannons into the Hudson River. So that's a lot of fun. And if you have kids, there's always a bunch of them there. And they really get to connect with history when you have loud, booming sounds. They think how great that must have been. And would have been tempting for General Wayne, but he wisely used bayonets, so he didn't have to make any noise, didn't give himself away. Amazing to look at the Palisades and think of scaling them and, and how the British did that especially. We talked about that a little bit in one of our other episodes, the Kearney House at the bottom of the Palisades, right on the lip of the Hudson. So this history is still very much alive, thanks in part to 
organizations like the Paoli Battlefield Preservation Fund. Tell us a little bit about that. We mentioned the website before. That's, remember, paoli.org. What will people experience when they check that out and join up? What do you need people to do? What's your next goal to continue this site? Well, our goal actually is to continue increasing educating the public. We do also have donate buttons on our site. If you click them, you can make a donation, tax-deductible donation to the Paoli Battlefield Preservation Fund. We are making some additional amenities to the park, like we talked about the cell phone tours and the video tours that we're doing. We also have our annual reenactment on uh, September 24th. We have a lecture series at the General Warren Inn that we run from September, October, November. We take December off and then we go from January all the way to May. We do have a summer series concert this year. It's going to be a musical sort of concert at the General Warren Inn as well. We have uh, paranormal tours, spring and fall here that we do that have become quite successful. So we're hoping to educate the public about what happened here, the outcomes of it, and build this area up. We are right now about halfway through trying to get National Historic Landmark awarded to both the Paoli Memorial Grounds and the Paoli Battlefield. The one thing that we've come across in our research is, you know how you hear, remember 9-11, and we hear, remember Pearl Harbor, remember the Alamo. Well, the first remember, the one that kind of started it all off, is here at Paoli. Remember Paoli. It was a rallying cry that was used that was born of this battle. You heard it done at the Battle of Germantown, which was October 4th, which was a few weeks after this battle. You also heard it at Monmouth. You heard it at Stony Point. So it was a rallying cry to Americans that started in the Revolutionary War and really continued right up to the Civil War. It sort of fell out of favor because then we had remember the Maine, remember the Alamo, remember Pearl Harbor, remember 9-11, all those things happened. But whenever you hear that, remember Paoli was the first utterance and the first remembrance of those words. And this site is also near some battles that, because they are bigger historic sites, it's easy to forget that Paoli is here, and it has been a little bit forgotten or at least overlooked. Mm -hmm. If listeners want to make the Paoli battlefield the center of their trip into our revolutionary past, tick off some of the other sites that are in the area. Well, you've mentioned already Valley Forge National Park. Of course, that's the park where the Continental spent the winter of 1707-1778 being trained by von Steuben who turned this collection of state armies into one united fighting force. All the same orders, all the same equipment, all the same tactics. South of us, we have the Brandywine Battlefield, the largest land area battle of the Revolutionary War. The site itself is only about 50 acres. It's located along Route 1 in Chad's Ford, Pennsylvania. You can go there to learn more about it. If you go even further south, you can actually go to Stanton, Delaware, and view the Hale Burns House. And this was a house where Lafayette and Washington met right at the beginning of the Philadelphia campaign to track what they were going to do, what their plans were, what they wanted to do, and stopping the British from gaining the capital of Philadelphia. As you mentioned, also, Philadelphia is close by. There is a rail station in Malvern that's not too far from the battlefield. So you can, if you are here, you can hop on a train to go into Philadelphia. There are, of course, tons of sites all over Philadelphia. The Museum of the American Revolution is going to be opening, I believe, next year in Philadelphia, which will be a, a cap, and they are going to have some displays there on the Battle of Paoli. I said before that we owe a debt today to the Continental Soldier who fell at battlefields like here at Paoli. 
not only for our independence, but also for the expansion of liberty and democracy that followed American independence and spread across the world. Now we look at democracy as an ideal. We just kind of expect it. We forget that it didn't just pop out of the minds of the Greeks and continue ever <laughs> since. It was something that had to be fought for. It's something that had to be secured. The idea of this republic, there have been a, hundreds of years since Rome. And so this is a debt that we owe. And yet it's easy to overlook it. It's easy to build over it. It's easy to pave over it. A year before the Battle of Paoli, on January 3rd of 1777, General Washington won his first victory over the British in Princeton, New Jersey. Today, the Institute for Advanced Study is attempting to build 15 faculty housing units on the heart of the battlefield. And needless to say, folks like Jim and myself find it I don't want to say crazy, but <laughs> find it unbelievable that you would want to pave over and build on it, especially when this is an institution of higher learning. So what advice, Jim, can you give the folks at Save Princeton about winning hearts and minds in the fight for historic preservation? It's really all about notification, notifying the public, getting your word out there. They have good backing from the campaign of 1776. George Will is doing some articles for them to help and support. And I think local battlefields here ought to get on board, too. It's very important because once they dig into that sacred ground, once they build buildings on there, it's not going to go back. You're not going to be able to see the vistas, the views. A lot of people look at these small battlefields and think, wow, you know, this is it. This small little area is where they fought. No, because houses and development has encroached upon it. It's made it actually smaller. So to save the original sites, we want to make the battlefields as large as possible and also be sensitive to the historical needs of the community. This is where America was born. This is where we were founded, and we think it's worth it that people go out and save their local historical sites. It's very true because you could easily have built over this whole area and have only the burial mound behind us. It would be the end of a road and nobody would ever come and look at it. But here you have a big open area and your eyes are drawn down at the end of this circular driveway to where you see the monuments, you know, you're drawn to that, and then you see the burial mound there out in the middle of a field. You see the fields where hopefully someday maybe you'll have corn again growing in the spirit of the mm -hmm. times. And that's an experience, you know. You walk over there, it feels like it's a place where there was a massacre. You want to be able to feel that. We owe it to the people that died that were run through at bayonets. I mean, think about it. You get a paper cut, Jim. Uh, some modern people, <laughs> we, oh gosh, that hurt. I got lemon juice in it. In all seriousness, imagine being run through in a bayonet. Imagine when you talk about General Wayne getting up there to Stony Point, I think, boy, I drove here and it's a long way. And I think of going all that way, you're marching, you're riding horses, you're suffering. There's no GPS. There's no cooler pack there for your food. You're suffering for your cause. So I'm hoping that they'll be able to realize that at Princeton and come to a nice solution. And also as a graduate of Rutgers University, as people know, we have President Obama coming to give our commencement this year. His wife is a graduate of our old time rival Princeton University. So I'm hoping that that will help people get some national attention on it because that certainly should be preserved and all these sites should. And it's great that you enable people to remember Paoli in their own way, even if they just want to give a few bucks if they come here and enjoy one of your events. I like that you also include the Spanish-American War. These are things that people just don't hear about much. It is very easy to forget about. Now, we talked about the Malvern Memorial Parade. 
that's the second oldest in the nation, is it? Well, we sort of think of it as the oldest, longest held parade in the United States. Actually, if you can trace all the way back to 1817, when the monument was built, there was actually parades from the Paoli Tavern on an annual basis from the Paoli Tavern to this burial mound right behind you. They did have a ceremony here, a remembrance ceremony for veterans, and it really lasted all the way into the Civil War. Uh, we're finding new articles that had happened uh, sometimes during the Civil War. In the September time frame, people would come here and, and still hold a remembrance ceremony. After the Civil War, it was changed to Memorial Day, and really in 1968, it was sort of reintroduced back out as Memorial Day, and the tradition of marching to the grave site is actually still held. They actually start the parade near the uh, end of the border of Malvern and uh, drive all the way. It ends here in this memorial park right by the gravesite. So it still continues from this day. It goes back to 1817. So there is a lot of firsts here for Paoli. We call it America's first battle cry and remember Paoli, but also the parades and the, the Paoli days and the remembering of the veterans that all started here at Paoli. I'm not against building houses. I live in one, so <laughs> I don't live on a, in a lean-to or in a teepee and recreate the Revolutionary War the way a lot of people do. But I look at something like that swamp, and I say, first thing you're going to do if you're going to build on that is you're going to drain it, and then that's lost, and it's something you can't go back and look at it and imagine laying there. And I'm sure maybe there's some people who come here. I'm sure you don't encourage drinking, but you could easily stumble right into that swamp and, and try to walk on your way home, take a shortcut, and get <laughs> stuck in it and experience the exact thing that would have happened to these soldiers. Imagine laying there all night. Imagine smelling the swamp gas. Sometimes it, you can get the smells of history, which is just as important as reading or looking at the topography. And you can't get that once you've drained it and put a ditch there. My favorite person in the whole Battle of Paoli, Samuel Brady, he was a picket at picket post number four that the British overran on their way here to Paola. It was right outside of the camp. A British soldier came up with a bayonet to try to stab him. And in the process of stabbing him, they actually pinned his coat against the rail fence that was behind him. Well, he realized that he really didn't need his coat to make an escape. He ripped off his coat, grabbed his rifle, and ran. A horseman was sent to chase after him. He actually turned around and fired, and we don't know if it just scared the horse, it hit the horse, but the rider fell off the horse. He made it into a swamp that is located on the battlefield down part of the way. The Crumb Creek starts here, and there is a marshy area with a swamp. He hid in the swamp the whole night of the battle. He's hearing horrific sounds, people shrieking, people yelling, screaming, burning. Everything's going on here. He said he had tunnel vision, didn't notice really what was going on around him. He just kind of hit his head and, and was scared. He woke up the next morning. There's 44 other people in the swamp with him, all American. So he led them out of the swamp, and actually they did rejoin General Anthony Wayne's uh, troops, I think, up in Red Lion, Pennsylvania, at the Red Lion Tavern. They had no idea that there was anybody around each other. They all just thought it was their spot, huh? Yeah, they, they all hid in there, and they hid from the battle. The, the next morning, actually, the farmers woke up and saw the blood and the bodies laying here, and the biggest concentration was where the burial mound is. That's why they chose that as the burial spot. It was actually a property line between two different farms. There is a false rumor going around that one of the property owners was a Tory and refused to let the Americans be buried on his property. There's also another false rumor that, funniest one, a headless horseman 
of Paoli, that his head was shot off with a cannonball. Well, that's kind of hard to do because there was no cannons fired at this battle. There were four cannons here, but none of them were fired in anger. So that's another false legend. We also have legends when this was first written of people thinking that the Americans were all asleep and the British snuck in almost like wearing sneakers and slitting their throats while they slept. That didn't happen. Wayne was up and his men were ready for an attack, but the 20 minutes notice and they didn't know which direction they were in. It was a massive confusion. Wayne, to get his troops out of here alive, really says a lot, though. There were some troops who made the ultimate sacrifice to buy troops time to get through the British and to safety. And they did hold the British back, but a lot of them did pay with their lives. The memorial, the second memorial behind us, the obelisk being raised in 1877. Think about what's going on at that point. Think about the depression that follows the Civil War. Think about all the veterans of that war, all the orphans of that war, and the widows of that war that had to be taken care of in the year 1877. Think of all the trauma over Andrew Johnson and what a terrible, disaster his presidency was. We're impeached him. All these things are happening. And yet this battle was so important to the people of the Paoli area that they decided to take the time to raise an obelisk to it and commemorate it. That's mm-hmm. something else. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the, the 1817 monument uh, was there and it was starting to show its age. People were chipping away some of the stone that was there. We actually had some vandals take pieces of it throughout the years. This was something that the citizenry, certainly right after this post-Civil War era, when uh, military patriotism is at a high that they loathed, they dedicated, rededicated this monument in 1877, the centennial monument that, you know, obviously 100 years since the battle. And it was a big to-do. The governor of Pennsylvania was here. Their two United States senators were here. There was a big parade, a lot of pictures, a lot of people jamming in here to see it because... Paoli was still fresh in the minds of the people. This is, as I say, where the Remember chants first started. It was actually in the Civil War. Both sides referenced Remember Paoli as part of why why God was on their side, why, why they were right and they were wrong. They both used this as inspiration on both sides to show that you could overcome deficits. And however savage the enemy might be, it can still fight through it and win the day. Well, I have one final question for you, Jim. Then maybe we can go watch some birds. Seems like this would be a great <laughs> spot for bird watching. I've seen about four or five species here, blue jays and cardinals and all kinds of birds. One final question, if people aren't bird watchers or even if they aren't that into history, let's target those folks and say, why should the 21st century American take time to travel back to Paoli Battlefield? Or if you are a history lover, how do you convince maybe that spouse or friend that, hey, come on, let's go to this battlefield. Let's go check it out. Check out Remembrance Day or one of your other events. What's your pitch? Our pitch is that this is where America was born, basically, and happened, that the Revolutionary War was where we as a country were founded. This is where our roots are. This is where we all, as Americans, we all claim to be. This is a very special spot because a battle was fought here between opposing forces, between the Crown and between a bunch of really a volunteer army that sprung up overnight through the leadership of General George Washington and other patriots. But this ground is consecrated and hollowed by these men. They gave their lives. They sacrificed their fortunes all for an idea, for democracy, for liberty. And we remember them. We want to remember them. We want to convince people they have to come to sites like this to not only pay homage, 
but also to remember what happened here. They can come to the site and see it, much like it was 230-some years ago, almost 240, I should say, more years ago, that this happened. This was something that was real. This is where it happened. This is where it all began. As far as for our battle site in Paoli, this is where, as I said, the, the remember Paoli, the remember chants first started. You hear them, as I said before, with remember the Alamo, but this was the first one, remember Paoli. And this was a site that all Americans, I think, should visit to learn and to understand what actually happened here, how we became a country. And this battle was certainly integral in it. It was the last battle that was fought for the defense of Philadelphia, and it was certainly one that hopefully will be remembered for a long time to come. Well, Jim Christ, Vice President of the Paoli Battlefield Preservation Fund, thank you for welcoming us into this hollowed ground today and showing us around and making that solid pitch for why you should visit. I know if I was listening and wasn't already here, I would certainly want to come and hear the story of the Continental Soldier and the British soldiers that clashed here almost 240 years ago. I look forward to seeing you again for one of your days when you're packed here with song and reenactors and we can really get the full experience of Paoli. Thank you so much. Well, I'm back in the studio over Radio City Music Hall here in the futuristic year of 2016 but I still hear the fife and drums of the revolution and the crack of muskets and the stab of those bayonets from the Paoli battlefield. No book to plug today, but we do hope you'll consider navigating to Amazon through the banner on our homepage for all your Amazon.com purchases. It helps keep us in gas money when we need to drive down to battlefields like Paoli, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Consider supporting the Paoli Battlefield Preservation Fund it relies on volunteer membership, tax-exempt donations, and educational and historic grants to meet its mission of preserving the stories of yesterday for the Americans of tomorrow. It's a great way to honor the sacrifices that gave us our freedom. Think about it. Our countrymen in 1877 were not only 10 years removed from the Civil War, they had just gotten through an economic panic five years before. They were celebrating the nation's centennial but bitterly divided over the disputed election between Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel J. Tilden. That dragged on for months and months, folks. And yet, they found the time to remember Paoli with that new memorial. It's an inspiration that reminds us to always make time for the things and the history that counts. My sincere thanks to Jim Christ for waking up early on a Sunday morning to share the story of the Paoli Massacre with all of us. Check out RememberPaoli.org and follow at Paoli Battle on Twitter for more on the most pristine Revolutionary War battlefield in the United States, which sits unchanged for almost two and a half centuries, just waiting for you to visit. And if our conversation inspired you to help Paoli achieve national landmark status, please consider enlisting with the Save Princeton Coalition to support preserving the ground of General Washington's charge. The Princeton Battlefield is a living memorial to the Continental soldiers who stood firm against hellfire on that very field nearly 240 years ago, all to secure the liberty we enjoy today. To sign up, visit campaign1776.org and theprincetonbattlefieldsociety.com. And let us know what you think of the interview on Twitter at HistoryDean 
or at facebook.com slash history author. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for Classical Wisdom Wednesday, History in Five Friday, and next Monday's all-new interview. And if you do subscribe on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. Just takes a click of your little finger there to drop us a star. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and happy reading.